Welcome to the Yellow Balloons podcast, a collection of teachings to help you navigate the transformational possibilities of a God-centered perspective. We pray these insights from Scripture will inspire and encourage you. The book of Ecclesiastes is an attempt to describe reality as it is and to encourage a faithful response. The book focuses on one simple fact. No matter how hard we try, there is no certainty. This reality presents two options in terms of our response. The first is to fight against it and demand satisfying answers, which so often leads to foolishness, superficiality, and madness. The second is to accept the mystery of life as an opportunity to trust God and lean into a life of faith. In this season, Tim Dunn and Joey Willis walk through the book of Ecclesiastes, verse by verse, discussing what is being revealed about the nature of God, our world, and our most adequate response to it. Grab your Bible, some note-taking supplies, and pull up the BibleSays.com commentary on Ecclesiastes as we take a deep dive into the deep truths of Ecclesiastes. Rich with humility and hope, uncertainty and purpose, mystery and faith, this book is sure to challenge your perspective on what it means to live life well. We're diving into a brand new series on the Yellow Balloons podcast, and we're going to talk about Ecclesiastes. Uh, I have Tim Dunn and my husband Joey Willis here with me, and I'm really excited as they go verse by verse through this book um, to see what scripture is going to reveal to us. So Joey, you have been passionate about Ecclesiastes for a really long time. Um, You've memorized the entire book. You've written a biblical commentary on it. Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, experience and relationship with Ecclesiastes and how you got so into it? Yeah, well, I, I first became interested in Ecclesiastes because I, I found that it was really misunderstood. It gets this rap of being a bit of a bummer as a, a, a lot of negativity, a, a downer of a book. And I didn't find that to be the case. As I read it and as I discovered it, there's so much wisdom, there's so much beauty. And I find in Ecclesiastes a great sense of hope and a great sense of freedom. And I came to love Ecclesiastes starting in high school. I was you know, a young teenage Christian, and I was hearing a lot of messages uh, from the church even that just didn't seem to match with my practical reality, what my real experience was like. And so I really first became affectionate about Ecclesiastes because it just didn't pull any punches and seemed to say the thing that sometimes as Christians we're afraid to say either because of nicety or because it's too complicated and we don't want to get into it. And that truth that Ecclesiastes is saying is that life is hard and it's messy. And so as a teenager, it was very helpful and encouraging for me to just hear the Bible say, life is hard and messy, Uh, but to also dive in deeper as I've grown as an adult and as a Christian, to dive deeper into Ecclesiastes and see that life is hard is not the end of the message, it's just the beginning of Mm -hmm. the message. And for me, the wisdom literature in general, but particularly Ecclesiastes, does a great job of sort of setting the stage of this is the reality of God's world. Now, how do you live in it? So we, we do the servant leadership stuff together. And uh, one of the things we like to say is current realities and acquired taste. Because uh, the, the framework for life is to have a clear there and a clear here, a real here. And if you have a clear there and a clear here, 
generates creative energy to act in a constructive manner. And often we don't have a clear there, and more often we don't have a clear here because we'd rather rationalize or imagine rather than face reality as it is. And I think Solomon invented current realities and acquired taste. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or at least, although he said nothing news under the sun, so at least he at least elevated it. Because what he's doing is he's saying, let's just get real here. But he he contrasts two ways of living. There's a binary proposition in Ecclesiastes. And one is we can do things through our own reason and our own experience, and which we all do to varying degrees. And we can try to control things we can't control, for example. And if we do we're going to get very predictable outcome. And he calls it madness <laughs> and futility. And the, one of the things that, and going through this with Joey, because Joey wrote the commentary and I edited it, so I probably learned a whole lot more than Joey did. But By the way, you can find the biblical commentary on thebiblesays.com. That's right. And what we're trying to do is is just look at the Bible, not from the standpoint of, how does it fit into anything? But just what does it say? And just take it at its take it at it at its face value. What does it say? And what Solomon does here, he pulls no punches. And he says, Listen, I I tried it. I tried living life through reason experience. I had unlimited resources. I, I'm the smartest guy that's the most wise person is ever I've got this supernatural gift of wisdom. And my thinking was. If anybody could do it, it's me. And I, I, and I reasoned, and I experienced all there was in experience. And what I found at the end of the day is it's meaningless vapor. And that word that's translated vanity in most translations is actually a Hebrew word that means vaporous. And I think it shows up nine times in Ecclesiastes, if I remember right. One time it's translated short are brief because the vapor vanishes and, and passes away. So it's not a technical term. It's a, it's a word picture that the context determines what does it mean. And, and when it's translated vanity, really, really the picture it's giving you is ungraspable. So Solomon is telling us, I tried, I tried it on your behalf to see if it really could be done. If anybody could do it, I could do it. And what I found is you can't grab it. But then there's another way, and that's the way of faith. And, and if you do that, it works. And you almost get the sense that Solomon's kind of sad it turned out that way. Yeah, absolutely, which makes sense. I mean, think about this. Whether we explicitly say this or acknowledge this or not, a, a lot of us feel like we're just one thing away from kind of having it all figured out. If I just could get this job or if I just felt better or whatever it is, just around the next bend. And what we discover in life is this circumstantial living where we cross that bend and guess what? There's just another bend. And so it's frustrating to us as Christians because a lot of times we hear the idea that you're just this close, you know, you just need this healing in this certain way and all will be all will be mm-hmm. well. Happy ever after. Happily ever after. No more suffering, no more mm-hmm. you know, pain, no more confusion. We are in a hurry, especially in today's modern world, for completion. 
we want to reach the finish line. And we think the finish line, we always think it's just kind of within grasp. We're just one, we're just missing one little thing. And the challenge is that once we get that little thing, we realize we're missing another little thing. And so this is how the idea of more becomes a black hole in our lives. You know, think about people who make a lot of money. There's this idea of like, if I could just make this much more, I'd be comfortable. I'd be mm-hmm. okay. But then you get that mu- that much and, and, and it's like, well, you know, really, if we got a little bit more, we could afford a second home or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever types of things it is. And you see this with fame too. If I was famous, people would mm-hmm. like me. There would be this sense of validation. I'd be complete. But then you get it and look at where the state of a lot of our celebrities, where they're mm-hmm. addicts and they're struggling with all sorts of depressions and things, it, it doesn't work. And that's what Solomon is, is saying. And I think one of the things the church has done poorly uh, in modern American history is kind of feed into that narrative and say, you want to you wanna get to that finish line? Well, just accept Jesus or trust Jesus a little more, and you'll get to that finish line. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a spiritual version of the Tyrion of more, I guess, is what you're saying. Right, and, that, and that's what Solomon is poking holes in. He's saying, look, it doesn't work. No, it doesn't work. It's all madness. It's all confusion. It's all mm-hmm. uh, you know, vaporous. That path is. That path is. But which, there's another path. But there's another path, exactly, which is why the thing that we tend to neglect when people look at Ecclesiastes, because we want completion in the sense that we want it, in the same way that... Uh, a lot of the Jews, a lot of the disciples wanted Jesus to be an earthly king of a mm-hmm. Messiah mm-hmm. instead of the way uh, that his kingdom was planned and initiated by by Jesus. So yeah, Solomon is saying you can be completed in Christ, mm-hmm. but it doesn't look like your circumstances and your emotions being perfected. It doesn't look like your struggle and your suffering mm-hmm. ending. What it looks like is peace and trust and contentment above your circumstances, no matter what you're going through. With where you are, enjoying what God's given you to do because he's given you to do it. And and that that's kind of a summary of the book as a whole. And, and actually, as I was going through this uh, and, and, and wrestling with it, I realized, oh, my goodness, it's the servant leadership training manual. I just never saw it before. <laughs> Because what we do in the servant leadership training, which is on thecrossroad.net, if you'd like to if you'd like to pick it up, is basically figure out how to see current reality as it is, and how to discern which road is the road of trusting and faith, and which road is the road of more, the tyranny of more, and the road that doesn't work. It's not always real clear. Yeah, and what what we hope to do in this season of Ecclesiastes is to show you those two paths and show you just what Solomon has to say about each of those paths and to just bring into your ears and your hearts and minds the reality of where we are and the choice that you have between those those two paths. Because the, it's really clear in Ecclesiastes, we choose. Now, Ecclesiastes is like the theory and Proverbs is the application. The two totally fit hand in glove which is something I really didn't really appreciate until we got into this project. Yeah, which is so funny because Proverbs is the thing that uh, people have printed and framed in their houses and stitched on their pillows, and Proverbs feels in some ways very wise and encouraging to people, whereas Ecclesiastes feels very down and, and difficult for people. But they're really like brother and sister. They're dance partners. They They work together, and they're trying to communicate the reality of the world that we're in and the options in front of us for how to live wisely in that reality. 
Now, the, the name of Ecclesiastes is really fascinating to me as well because it is actually a Greek name, and I think it came from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it, it, it is from the word ecclesia. And the word ecclesia uh, shows up quite often in the New Testament, and it's usually translated church. So the last thing anybody would think of when they think of Ecclesiastes, if they think of it in a typical manner, is the church book. Okay, if, if we called this the book of church, it would be confusing, right? But that, I think that's often because we don't think of church the right way. Mm. We tend to think of church as a building or as an organization. But the church, the word ecclesia was a Greek word that already existed, and it was used for any assembly. Like for example, when the Greek city-states would have a vote, the people would ecclesia in the street and take the vote. It's an assembly. People gather together. It's a gathering. And the reason why the, the word ecclesia was used in this is because of this word that's translated preacher in Hebrew means assemble, and which is odd. Like So we got the book of church put together by the, by the, by the assembler, and somehow we got Ecclesiastes and preacher. So talk to us about this word about that's, a, that's translated as preacher, and let, let's get a, a better context here. Yeah, so the Hebrew word is koheleth, and it means assembler. And so anytime that we're going through this and you hear the word teacher or preacher, that's the word koheleth. And so Solomon creates this character, the teacher or the preacher, who is uh, the one who's going through this discovery and outlining what he finds. And so the Koheleth is the assembler. And so he is, again, to talk about the connection to Proverbs, he is a, a, an assembler. A teacher necessarily has pupils, right? And yeah. so he's got people together to have this discussion about reality. And you'll see Solomon jump into this kind of uh, first-person voice, um, third-person voice. And, and so there's these individual applications as well as a communal application. And so that word koheleth, assembler, is uh, translated into Greek as ecclesia, uh, ecclesia, ecclesia, which is translated to English as church. Church. And so that's the, the lineage that, that we're getting here. Yeah, So it, and it can apply to I'm gathering a group of pupils together which we see, we'll see in Proverbs. We see in Proverbs that, you know, he's, especially young men he's speaking to. It also can mean I'm assembling all this information mm-hmm. and I'm making sense of it all and I'm giving you the conclusion of my experiments because we're going to see some very grand and expensive experiments here that, that Solomon's going to do. I think that's an important thing to mention too because Solomon's going to come out with the real powerful gut punch at the very beginning here, the famous meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Right three verses in, he's there. He's hitting you hard. But remember that this is Koaleth, and so he is setting up for the rest of the assembled thoughts and ideas. And so as he goes, he's going to um, unpack that initial statement and show you how he got there, what are the repercussions of, of uh, 
that idea, that concept of Hevel, of vapor. Yeah, and he and and if we if we got a if we were in the Hebrew mindset, what we would probably hear is vaporous, 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 life is vaporous. And he would be giving us a picture that would cause us to ask, well, what do you mean? What what does that represent? What do you mean by that? When the when the translators put it into English, meaningless, 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 they sort of took away the word picture from us. And we have to mm-hmm. kind of reverse back out and get to where we were originally intended to be. So Right. The connotation we hear when we hear meaningless is without purpose. Mm-hmm. And the connotation of vaporous is mysterious. Mysterious, ungrabbable, ungraspable. And that is not, yeah, so those are not the same thing. This is not Mm -hmm. a book about life doesn't have purpose. This is a book about how life is mysterious. But within that mystery, we can choose either kicking against the goad, which leads to madness, or we can choose to lean into that mystery as an invitation to trust in God, which leads to purpose, which leads to meaning in the way we traditionally understand it. And happiness as well. Yeah. So let's get into it. Let's start with 1-1. The words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. So here, here the author is introduced, and we, we don't ever actually get the word Solomon in here. We presume it's Solomon because of the descriptions. Right. But he, he calls himself the assembler, the koaleth, son of David, king of Jerusalem. So why does he introduce himself that way? Well, I think these three things are extreme, each extremely important for the discussion that he's about to have. He is setting up, what he's basically saying is like, look, as you said earlier, Tim, I am uniquely qualified for this experiment, for this mm-hmm. thought experiment. I'm uniquely qualified for the journey we're about to go on. Uh, the words of the preacher, the words of the Koalith, the assembler, alludes to Solomon's wisdom. He's renowned as the wisest man that's ever lived. There's these, you know, these great stories about Solomon gaining the supernatural gift of, of wisdom. So he's got that in his pocket. He also has the son of David, you know, the kingly mm-hmm. uh, inheritance, um, ruling over the, God's people mm-hmm. and the line that, of the Messiah. And yeah. so there's this great kind of, uh, you know, we separate a lot of times political, cultural, religious, but the they wouldn't have separated that no. in, in the ancient Israel. They would have heard all three in Son yes. of David, that, that Solomon is uniquely in the, in the mm-hmm. epicenter of those, those entities. And then king in Jerusalem, you know, Solomon is reigning during the height of Israel's prosperity. Mm-hmm. So he has every worldly avenue available to him, which he'll explain in chapter two. And so what Solomon is saying, again, with these three titles is, look, there, there's no... There isn't a lack of opportunity for me. There isn't a, oh, well, Solomon has these conclusions, but if he just had this other avenue, maybe he would have come to a different conclusion. He has been, he, he's been born on third base and hit a triple. So <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's a guy that, again, if there were a different conclusion to be had, he would, he would have made it. So he's trying to set up the authority here. If there's anybody you should listen to. It's and me. It's, it's, it's me. Yeah, right. And especially since this is written to Jews. I mean, this is the, the authority of authorities. Verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, here's where you get the downer reputation, right? Right here. It's because of this translation. And this, this is the word hebel, the Hebrew word hebel. Now, this was pointed out to me by somebody else, uh, I don't remember where it came from. Maybe it was you. But uh, Hebel 
is means actually warm breath or vapor. And uh, as I mentioned previously, the one of the instances in, in Ecclesiastes, it's translated brief. Just like in James, I wonder if James would have used the word hevel when he said, all life is like a vapor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he, what he was saying is really brief. And that you see a wisp of vapor, it, you know, there's steam on the stove or something. It, you see it for a second and then it's gone. That, that's one of the images that you can have. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and in fact, that, that's part of what this is. It's, it's pretty short. One of the things we're going to see Solomon bemoan is that he builds all these great works and then he's not around to see them because life is brief and death is certain. That's that's one of the realities that he, with his wisdom and insight, sees. And and, and one of the curses of wisdom is you see more problems. <laughs> you see more difficulties. And, and, and he's going to tell us that, right? Yeah, he's not even going to get out of chapter one before he hits that pretty hard. But yeah, this, this word hevel, the vapor, is the key to this entire book. And so again, it, it doesn't mean meaninglessness in the sense that we often hear. It doesn't mean purposelessness. Uh, another image that I think about is like a wisp of smoke. If mm-hmm. you try to follow it with your eyes, it just kind of mm-hmm. disintegrates. And, and if you certainly if you try to grab it in your hand, it seeps through your fingers. So this is another way of saying we can't control things. There's no... Mm-hmm. There's no mental model or there's no perfect mm-hmm. alignment of circumstances that we can just grab life and say, ah, we've got it. It's all done and dusted and figured out. And now I'm just happily ever after forever. That's not what this life, this world is created for. And so Solomon is, you know, again, this is a gut punch right at the beginning. But this is what he's saying. He's saying, look, if we grab as tight as you may, all you're going to end up with is clenched fists. And so we have two options then. We can either dig our fingernails into the palm of our hands, or we can let go and trust in God. And so he'll outline, again, those two options. But this is, this is the key to the whole thing here. Uh, I like to think of this word as a kind of synonym for mystery. Life mm-hmm. is mysterious. Life is mm-hmm. uncertain. And people are scared of mystery. We're scared of uncertainty. We don't like it. We want to shrink the world into something that feels more manageable to us. And Solomon right here is, is already bemoaning. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I've tried it all. I've, I'm, I'm the king of, of Jerusalem. I'm the son of David. And I can't seem to get rid of my frustrations and my uncertainty and my confusion and my difficulty. I'm going to have to believe something after all. I can't figure it all out. Mm-hmm. Now, what this leads to, of course, is that life is a paradox. And life is a paradox because God is a paradox. And this is something that if you're an Easterner, <clears throat> you would say, duh, you know, because the Eastern world still thinks <clears throat> in animistic terms. Uh, the, the, frame, the term animism means spirit realities animate physical realities. <clears throat> and that's the, that's the predominant thinking if you go to Eastern cultures. Often it's off base, you know, the ancestors are causing this to happen or whatever, and they tend to not look at cause-effect, but they fully recognize the spiritual dimensions in the world. Well, we're just the opposite. Mm. We completely uh, acknowledge cause-effect. We do physics and math and things like that, and we see cause-effect. And what we tend to ignore is there's a spiritual reality. And God is paradoxical. 
to us. From our perspective, he's paradoxical. So let's just explore that for a minute. So is God everywhere at once or in one place at a time? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Is God a human or a spirit? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, both. Okay. Is God one or multiple? Three. Three. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, both. Okay. Is God resting or striving? It's both, right? And we just keep on going. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, is God fully in control or did God give us a choice? You know, it's both. Mm-hmm. So how, how can all that be? Well, from our perspective, we, we, can't, we can't grasp. It's Hebel. It, it's vaporous. But the, the, real, the real foundation for understanding the Scripture does not begin with, Tim shall know. I I have a brain, so I will figure out. Solomon's going to make that real clear in Ecclesiastes. The beginning for understanding in Scripture is, in the beginning, God. Or, God, what is your name? My name is existence. I am. Everything emanates from me. And I'm an engineer by training, by education, and as you, as you dig into the physical world, you know what you find? It's a paradox. So everything comes out of the electromagnetic wave. Now, I just say those words and you go, well, what, what in the world are you talking about? Well, that's what they say. That's the best understanding we have is everything comes out of the electromagnetic wave. And everything's made of electromagnetic particles. And ultimately, nothing touches. But I can touch this table. I feel it. And yet they'll say, well, what you're actually feeling is pushback from electromagnetic particles. And no one can explain how an atom doesn't blow apart because it's so dense it should collapse on itself. And and the electrons are spinning so fast it should blow apart. And the solar system, you know, is the world. I mean, here we are in the world. It's spinning at, what is it, 14,000 miles an hour or something like that? Do you feel like you're moving? And we're going around the sun, we're spinning, and we're going around the sun. I feel as still as it can be. When I go to Australia, I, feel, I just feel real uncomfortable because I know I'm upside down. And it, really, <laughs> it really makes me uncomfortable, right? But it doesn't feel any different, even though I'm looking at different stars. And when you start to really step back, you say, well, all of life is totally paradoxical. And so why wouldn't I expect God to be paradoxical? And here it is right in our face. Life is Hebel. It's a mystery. And one of the, I, I don't, I like the translation of vanity better than the translation of meaningless. Because if you think about what you just described and the realities all around us that are pointing to just things that, that are happening that we can't understand, isn't it vanity to think that we can figure it all out? <laughs> and isn't that the original sin, right? Eat of this fruit and you can be like God, knowing good and evil, right? You don't have to trust him to tell you good and evil. You don't have to go through him. And isn't that the sin that, that tempts us all along? What if I didn't need God? Mm-hmm. What if I could be God? And in Christian circles, at least I'll speak for my life. In my life, I spent a good chunk of my time in the church trying to use God to make me God. 
<laughs> rather than trying to learn how to actually trust in God. Mm -hmm. And that is vanity. That is arrogance. The idea that I can, uh, that I am meant to be perfect. But, but on the other hand, Solomon wrote us a book and he's giving us understanding. So while we can't know as God knows, which is living through human reason and experience and figuring everything out, we can know. And we can know really in an amazing way as long as we start with the right thing, which is faith. Mm. Now, if you took a lot of math courses like I did, it always starts with axioms. Okay, we're going to start with definitions. And you have to believe those definitions are true or the math doesn't work. And that's the way the world works in every respect. And if we start with believing God is who he says he is, life opens up and it starts to make a lot of sense, total sense, complete sense. And that's the two paths we have to choose between. Well, and that's, that's the great paradox of being a human being. If I let go of the vain idea that I am God and trust that God, only God is God, that actually unlocks my potential to participate in the kingdom of God and be a disciple of his to a much greater, and participate in divine things to a much greater degree than I ever would be able to if I was relying on my own reason and experience. Yeah, let's just explore that to a, a, in another respect. Jesus came, died, rose again before he rose uh, and then ascended. But before he ascended, he said to the disciples, all authority is given in heaven on earth to me. All authority is given. And then he delegated that authority and essentially th through words and New Testament said, I want you to follow my example which is to serve first, rule later. Hmm. Serve first. And, and, and we see Philippians that tells us, us as Christians, have this mind that Christ had. He had all authority in heaven. His father asked him to set it aside and go take on the form of a man, a human, in order to learn obedience even to death on the cross. And because he was willing to do that and serve, his name as a human was lifted above every name. So now, now Jesus is not only king of heaven, he's king of earth as a human. He's both. Mm -hmm. Why? Because he served. And if we're willing to set aside self and serve, he actually says, I want to share my throne with people like you. So the path this is super paradoxical. The path mm -hmm. to greatness is becoming a servant. And he says, he says similar things like, if you want to find yourself deny yourself. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, be the servant of all. Everything about the Christian life is paradoxical. And to go back to what Kylie was asking at the very beginning, what I love about Ecclesiastes is I love, it takes this paradox head on. Mm -hmm. It says, if you want to be great, you have to die to your idea of greatness and accept the true path of what God says is, is, great. is great. If you want to live a life of purpose and meaning, You've got to die to your fleshly, self-centered idea of what success looks like and allow yourself to be rebuilt in the image of success according to the kingdom of God. And so we've got to like do this kind of dying so that we might find our life. And that's what 
what I think Ecclesiastes is really trying to outline. And here's maybe the greatest paradox of all. God built us to seek our best interests. We can't not do it. Which is why he said, love your neighbor like you love yourself. He didn't say learn to love yourself. He said, you already do that. Now learn to love your neighbor as yourself. But the greatest, the greatest paradox to me is my ultimate self-interest is to set aside my inclination to self-seek mm. and to invest in what God tells me to invest in. And the fruit of that on the other side is what I was truly longing for. Another way to say that is if I'll set aside my physical appetites, there's a much, much deeper spiritual appetite that actually is where satisfaction takes place. But there's this pain of not getting more now, not getting what I want now that I have to endure to get this much, much deeper thing. Yeah, well, last thought, and then we'll let Kylie read. She's itching to get to the verse three. We're on <laughs> verse two still, folks. But there's a, great, there's a great parable, right, where Jesus talks about guests at a banquet. And he says, like, don't go and fight over mm-hmm. the best seat. Go to the worst seat so that the master will come and say, no, no, you mm-hmm. move up, move up, let be escalated so that you don't have to go through the embarrassment of being humbled and moved down to a, to a lesser seat, the one where the master comes and says, uh, sorry, you're in my seat. You need to scoot down. That's embarrassing. But if you go to the last seat and trust that the master will call you to the place you're supposed to be in, but that's scary. That's uncertain. It feels better for us to go to the seat we want and mm-hmm. claim it and sit in it. Mm-hmm. But the parable is saying, trust God enough to put yourself in a place where you're under his authority, and then he will elevate you to the proper seat. First Peter 5 uh, says that overtly. I wonder if Peter had that parable in mind when he wrote it. It says, uh, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time. Now, we, we like to determine the time ourselves and the manner. Well, and we don't want to wait. And we don't want to wait. And God says, if you'll trust me at the right time, I'll exalt you in a manner that's way better than you could have come up with yourself. And that's this path of faith that Solomon's going to chart out for us. Thanks for listening to the Yellow Balloons podcast. If you want more information on adopting a God-centered perspective, visit our website at yellowbloons.net. And if you have any questions related to what you just heard, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at contact at yellowbloons.net. Thanks for listening.